we need to take care of water quality. Water quality is going to directly affect the Great Lakes. If we choke the Great Lakes, we're going backwards. All kinds of agencies and you know municipalities and organizations are looking to agriculture to, to make a difference in the Lake Erie Basin. Welcome back to The First 16. I'm Sarah boivin Shabat, And I'm Kirk Finken. Today, we're touching on an initiative that's come up once before. Does that make this a sequel? A spin-off? Mm, well, how about we call it an expanded universe. The universe of living labs. In a past episode, we talked about the Living Lab Project in Quebec, an initiative that brings farmers and scientists together to tackle agricultural and environmental issues. And this time we're hopping over to Ontario to check out their project on preserving soil and water quality in and around Lake Erie. When it rains on large farm fields, the excess water washes fertilizers and manure into stream, which then flow into the lake. This feeds into an outbreak of algae. And that algae can make the water toxic for fish, wildlife, and even humans. But researchers and producers are working hard on a solution. Those voices you heard were Henry Donater, a farmer and participant from Essex County, and Pamela Josie, the project co-lead from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. They've come together to figure out how Lake Erie is being affected by agricultural runoff and what can be done to prevent it. You know, Sarah, I really love projects like this because they're all about collaboration. And when we did the interviews, I could just tell how closely they've been working together just by the way that they answered the questions. They were totally on the same wavelength. For sure. So let's do something a bit different and hear from them together. All right. Henry, Pamela, over to you. So my name is Henry Donater, and uh, I run Donater Farms with my uh, wife and my son. We are a farming operation. We take care of uh, growing, uh, growing corn, wheat, soybeans, and We've entered into uh, buckwheat in the last few years to try as a create a fourth crop in a three crop rotation. Yeah, so Henry's located in the Weigel Creek watershed, and that watershed drains directly into the western Lake Erie Basin, and that's where you hear in the news all the time the harmful algal blooms typically occur. We have edge of field monitoring equipment set up in three of Henry's fields. What's unique about it is that each of these fields grows one of his crops that are in rotation. So he grows corn, soybean, and winter wheat. And these are the most commonly grown field crops in Ontario. What we're able to do and where it's located, we're able to monitor both the surface and the tile water from each of those fields. And that's often hard to find in the landscape. You don't always get the right geography to be able to do that because we know water moves over the surface and it also moves through tiles and a lot of it moves through tiles in the Essex region. So it's important that we try to understand which way the water is flowing because um, that's that's the way the nutrients move off the land. <laughs> when you talk about nutrients, what specifically are you referring to? We're primarily focused on monitoring uh, forms of phosphorus because that's the main nutrient of concern for algal blooms in Lake Erie and in the Western Lake Erie Basin in particular. We're also monitoring nitrogen and carbon forms because these are also important to understanding stream water quality. And the ratio of these nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus in particular, can affect the species and toxicity of algal blooms. 
yes, we need to look after uh, the Great Lakes because uh, there's lots of things going on out there, uh, algae blooms, uh, different uh, water quality issues, and the the issues start in in the in the agricultural land, like trying to keep everything there. We all need to be economically uh, sustainable. We need to grow a crop. We need to make some money at it, and so we can expand and and improve. Uh, but you know what? If we uh, if we choke uh, we choke the Great Lakes, uh, we're not accomplishing anything. We're going backwards. It's, it's maybe as Henry colloquially said, we've messed up Lake Erie. It's kind of come back with a vengeance, right? The Lake Erie Basin has a lot of agricultural land use and a lot of different types of agriculture. Um, one of the most productive parts of Canada. And so we know if we want agriculture to continue there, it needs to be doing it in a very sustainable way because it's surrounded by these lakes um, with the most sensitive being Lake Erie. Um, that's really getting the brunt of kind of climate change populations and runoff at the same time. I, th I think Living Labs has the opportunity to accelerate adoption because the farmers are seeing the research occur firsthand and the scientists are working on real farms and that in the end it's the real farms where the changes have to happen and so if we can overcome some of the the questions or hesitation that uh, farmers have and or really show benefits uh, to some of these practices, I think that's going to just um, give a lot more uh, credence, enthusiasm, um, evidence is the term we like to use, but it, it's confidence in the practice is what farmers are, are looking for. They want to have the confidence that this is going to be the right thing to do. They're still going to be able to make money. Um, they understand the level of risk associated with it and, and are willing to take it or not and understand the long-term or short-term benefits that, that are there. Now, Henry, your operation is a few generations deep, isn't it? Do you remember when you started test driving these sustainable practices? Well, you know, the first, I guess the first time that we did a lot of changes was close to about 25 years ago when I suggested to my dad that, uh, and him and I were farming together then, we needed we need to reduce tillage. We're doing way too much tillage. Um, there's too much soil leaving the field. Uh, we've got to, got to make a few changes here. And I think equipment uh, technology has uh, expanded to a point that we can eliminate tillage and possibly even like don't till, no till. Of course, uh, my dad uh, was used to, uh, you know, back in the old uh, in the old country, uh, if they didn't get the corner of the field worked up, you got sent out there with a shovel. You had to go and spit it over by hand and fill that corner in like that. But uh, so, you know, like you have to get away from that thinking. And he finally let me try it. Um, we had a planter that I had done some work on, and I said, this thing will plant no-till. So I no-tilled a, a piece of uh, soybeans. I had to do it behind the bush uh, where nobody could see it. And uh, we uh, we planted soybeans. Uh, we you know, made a ton of mistakes, but we got them in the ground and sprayed them, got in a big panic. But we basically, uh, my field out yielded the one that was done the way he wanted by about 10 bushel, which is uh, which was incredible. And plus all the work we saved, we didn't do anything. Uh, we just basically pulled a planter through the field, planted it, sprayed it, bingo, soybeans. 
So uh, that's that's for the start. So then he kind of says, yeah, maybe we should look at this a little bit more. And it took about two years. And the next thing you know, we had a, a big 19-row uh, uh, no-till soybean plant. And that's how it progressed. And that was uh, over 25 years ago. So now we try and no-till pretty well everything. Everything's geared to go no-till. Yeah, Henry is doing a couple really important things that are, are good practices that we would recommend to a lot of farmers to do. Uh, one is reducing his tillage, which creates good soil structure and leaves some residue on the surface. That lets the water infiltrate and holds any particulates that phosphorus is also attached to particulates, holds it in the field. The other thing that he does is places his fertilizer below the surface, especially when you're no-tilling, no it's important to um, move the fertilizer below the surface because you're usually not disturbing that soil at all and mixing things up. And if you leave that fertilizer at the surface, it, it's very easily washed off the surface. So he gets it under the ground and that's a good thing. The other thing he's doing is regularly using cover crops in his cash crops. So sometimes that's over winter um, just to leave roots in the soil after harvest, but he's also experimenting with things like buckwheat, uh, which serves as another cash source, but also uh, enhances pollinator habitat. That was something I tried, wanted to do five years ago. And uh, I had some talks. I was sitting on a couple of different boards in Guelph and I would sit and talk to some of these uh, older guys and said, you know, you guys ever grow buckwheat? And one guy looked at me and said, when are you going to get the goats? I says, goats. He says, buckwheat's a poor man's crop. You know, you grow that and you get goats because it doesn't cost you any money. <laughs> goats. Uh, yeah, no, not exactly what you want to hear when you're talking about a new crop. Not unless you're into goat husbandry for sure. But it's worked out very well for Henry. Last year was a, a great year for buckwheat, so was the year before. There's no room to put uh, a cover crop in the, in between soybean plants because it, all you're doing is adding something that you don't want. So, But anyhow, that's where the buckwheat comes back in. So that, that's the fourth crop on a, on a three-crop rotation. Um, the fact that it grows so fast um, and we can get that in the ground on a timely matter and... Uh, get it growing and uh, we uh, we can uh, basically take a, a day off when we when we're combining beans or doing corn clean out the combine desiccate the buckwheat and we'll cut all the buckwheat at once uh, it's usually uh, anywhere between 150 and 200 acres if, if the plants are going right but we also want to take that uh, that buckwheat idea we bring bees in We've, I've got an arrangement with the bee guy uh, brings bees in. Um, that is a, just another benefit that is uh, basically environmentally friendly because I've got these bees working away, pollinating all this uh, this buckwheat. Um, the bee guy gets uh, buckwheat honey. At this time of the year, there's a lot less uh, flowering going on. So the, those bees get in there and, and just uh, basically go nuts. They think it's just like, it's great. So you know, you'll see a 50-acre field, and there'll be 50, 60 uh, different beehives sitting across the end of the field, and uh, it's it's almost noisy when when the the sun's out and they're working. It's it's a noisy uh, little little place, 
But uh, again, that's a, just a side benefit. Um, we're trying to uh, promote that, the fact that you can basically work with another group uh, and they can get some benefit out of it. You get two benefits. You get the fact that you're going to, you're pollinating, doing a good job pollinating and he's getting uh, the bees working it and getting the uh, buckwheat honey out of it. It sounds like there's collaboration all over the place and it's really key for both profitability and sustainability in agriculture. Yeah, definitely. But let's go back to Pama for a second and talk about the science side of this team up. What does the Living Lab project mean to you, Pema? I think for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, this is a, a bit of returning to their roots in some ways. We've, we've had sort of a history of the last 20 years or so now of, of really, in, in I'll say, intense and, and high-level, we'll say, upstream research, but haven't been in, in the field as much. And, and so I think there's... Um, lost some of awareness of what agriculture, agri-food Canada scientists are, are are doing sometimes. And so I think this is a real opportunity to put people together, the researchers and, and the farmers, to sort of work together on these projects. So not just see it presented at a conference or um, we have the Southwest Ag Conference or come to a, a Harrow Field Day, an open house, and see the plots when things are on a farmer's field and in a working landscape, it's, um, I think, more impactful for the for the farmers and also helps the scientists understand the um, complexities of the decisions that the farmers are having to make every day. Um, in science, we'd like to be very reductionist. And one of the biggest challenges with living labs in, in a real system is finding controls and finding um, the comparisons. Um, and because farmers have their one system. And so one of the neat things we're able to do with the current Living Lab project is have a real variety of ways that farmers are trying to do continuous cover and reduce tillage and kind of compare them between each other, not just on the one farm. And so it's a, uh, it's a bigger scale project for both the researchers because they see this real variety of things out there. Um, but it's also a challenge because th there's so much variety and variability as we try to use our scientific methods uh, to find that statistics and evidence that these farmers are really looking for. We wanted the focus in, in Living Labs to be the innovation. And so um, everybody in some ways is an innovator. The, the farmer has an innovative practice he's trying, but the scientists are also being innovative and in trying different ways of studying these practices. We've got new techniques, new kinds of uh, tools and systems to sort of, and statistics to try to understand systems now much better than, you know, even 20, 10 years ago. And so what's what's unique sort of about the living lab approach is that co-development term, which means we can ask questions together. Uh, we, we did ask each of the, the farmers what were their what was their main question? Right? What, what did they want to know? And the scientists involved who got involved in Living Labs and came forward really wanted to know what the farmers wanted to know. They did understand that the adoption is going to be driven by answering the farmers' questions, like the, what's stopping them from doing more of this or other farmers doing this. So they wanted to understand the questions with the point that if they can answer those, um, that will help overcome some of the barriers that are keeping 
some people from, from adopting some of these practices. Does Henry help to provide these questions? Yes, Henry loves to spend time with our team and uh, try to understand what we're trying to figure out and us trying to figure out what he's figuring out. Um, how can I say that better? Henry likes to, um, yeah, likes to challenge us. He's always, why, why are you measuring that? You know, can I help you with something? You know, can we do this too? Uh, you know, I think if, if we had the resources to measure everything, I think he would love it. I really enjoy the part of when they, when I can get them out of their office, away from their laptop, get them in a pair of boots or, uh, you know, my pants and say, okay. And if it's cold, like, you know, maybe a coat, two coats, and get them out standing in the field, outstanding in the field, looking. And this is, this is where it all starts. And uh, like the other, last week I had six different environmental people out. Um, most of them are number crunchers. Basically just take numbers and homogenize and make data and, and go from there. So I tossed one a cob of corn kind of looked at him. I says, that's where it all starts. That's what you need to get. You need to get it, that land to grow, that crop, get that cob of corn growing. And, you know, that's where all the data has to uh, to come to. So that that's the part I really enjoy, Joe, about the, uh, the scientists or whatever. I know they can adjust, quantify my numbers, say, yes, this is great, this is neat, but I like getting them out, getting them into the into the field and to see what's going on. In Living Labs, it's kind of neat because there are some new uh, relationships in terms of uh, people working together for the first time or adding, knowing about the work that someone else is doing in their own department, right? And people are saying, you know, we, we have a problem we really want to solve and what can we throw at it? Well, I think that might have been the easiest episode I've ever hosted. I think so. They had so much to share. You can really picture the knowledge exchange that's happening on the ground with the Living Labs project. And you know, we got some great tips on sustainable agriculture, tested and approved by both scientists and farmers. You know, just reducing your tillage, placing your fertilizer below the surface of the soil. And don't forget the buckwheat. Of course, buckwheat and bees. I love buckwheat pancakes. Buckwheat honey. Two great Canadian products. In a previous life, my job was to try and create this relation between the producers and the researchers. But a decade ago, it was much harder than it was now. That's super, like, this project is like a dream come true. Well, it just shows you we'll have to do a follow-up episode in the future and see where they're at. Another one for the Living Lab Extended Universe. Oh, yeah. Coming soon to a podcast platform near you. <laughs> But until then, you know what to do. Try something new. And you know what? Try some buckwheat pancakes, buckwheat honey. Yeah, but not together. Uh, Separate. Yeah. Uh, it's been intense. It would be, but why not? <laughs> <laughs>